friends. Uh, welcome to RUF. Um, if I've not had the pleasure of meeting you, my name is Sammy, and I'm the campus minister here. And uh, we're going through the Gospel of Mark this semester, and tonight we're coming to a passage in Mark chapter 5. I'm going to read it for us, and then I'll pray, and then we'll jump in. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 24. <clears throat> and a great crowd followed him, Jesus, and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, his clothes, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt it. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Let me pray for us and I want to talk about about this passage uh, tonight. Let's pray first. Our Lord, we thank you that you are the one um, who even um, just touching the hem of your garment. uh, Lord, any faith, however small, that you are with us and for us, that you love us, that you are the Savior, that you are the Son of God come for sinners, Lord, that um, it does, you do, wonders through the power of your mercy and love. And Lord, as uh, speaking for myself and I assume for at least some of my friends, um, we need that good news tonight. Lord, we need you to meet us in our struggle. We need you to meet us in the places where we been um, waiting for years for some relief. We need you to meet us uh, in the places of our shame. And Lord, I pray that by your spirit that you would do all those things and more in our midst tonight. We look to you as the lifter of our heads. Would you be that to us tonight? We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. So if you've been around RUF very long, you've no doubt heard this story at least once, maybe twice, maybe three times. But I do have a a different part that I don't normally share. And it's the day of my wedding. And it's the story of basically the way it went. Alyssa and I got married. We're coming up in 20 years, December 13th in 2003. Yep, yep, we're making it. The goal is another 20. uh, At least. (laughs) Hopefully hopefully more. Um, But the way the story goes is that uh, it's December. We're going to a honeymoon in Jamaica for some reason, I'm very into how I'm going to look for our wedding for my bride in Jamaica. And so the, the night of our, the day of our rehearsal dinner, so we got married on a Saturday, Friday, I decided that I would go to a tanning bed. And I'd never been to a, t- here's an important detail, I'd never been to a tanning bed before. And so I show up, I don't ask, I've got like a mom and a sister, I've lots of women in my life that I could have been like, hey, give me the... What do I need to know? Didn't ask anyone in my pride. Just thought I'm going to this tanning bed. I'm going to be nice and tan for this wedding. 
for Jamaica. So I go in and the only way to describe this, this is in Sumter, South Carolina, where we got married. Uh, this tanning bed was one of the sketchiest places I'd ever seen before. And I should have known that an old man was working the register and I should have thought maybe, maybe let's not do this, but I went ahead with it and I said, I would like to spend some time in the tanning bed. And he said, well, how long? And I was like, I didn't know there were options. He was like, well, yeah, you could go five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, something like that. And I thought, 15, easy. I tan pretty well. Like, this is easy. Those of you who know tanning beds know where this is going. It gets worse, so I'm like, 15, sign me up. I decided, this is the best way I can say this in public, I decided to go for it. And just, but, but put the, with the goggles, okay? So I go the full 15. I'm feeling a little crispy, but it's fine. Go home. Remind you, this is the night of our rehearsal. Go home, or the day of our rehearsal. Go home, take a nice nap, two hours solid. Wake up. I feel, I feel hot. <laughs> I feel hot. And I go into the, the bathroom, and I look in the mirror. And, and the best way that I've tried to describe it is it looked like a hot dog and a raccoon had a baby. Because <laughs> it's beet red but with white eyes. And when I tell you, this is not made up, when I tell you that uh, the, the, <laughs> the moment my wife laid eyes on me and as we got into the church together, she cried. <laughs> I'm not making that up. She literally cried because she knew what I didn't know that our wedding pictures were about to be changed <laughs> because all of our wedding pictures, because of my hot dog raccoon look, are in black and white. <laughs> the few that we have in color, which if you come to Wednesday Night Fellowship, uh, just ask. We've got the wedding album. It's just clear. Uh, hot dog, raccoon, baby. All right, here's the part that I don't often share. Is when I see, it's, it's, it's funny to me, but when I see that picture, which it, I walk by it, I don't always look at it, but there's a picture, a black and white one, uh, by the kind of front door, near the front door of our house. Uh, I see a young man, uh, and this is the best way I can say it. This is the part I don't normally share. Uh, I see a young man who hated himself. Uh, I see a young man who hated his body. The other part that I don't share is that I nared myself. <laughs> if you know what nair is, it's a hair removal deal. Okay. Uh, I thought that if I could just look a certain way, everything would be okay. I thought at the time, 23, that if I just tried hard enough, depression would stop being a thing in my life. I thought that getting married would solve any and every sexual struggle that I had. In its own way, that picture to me is a picture of a young man desperately trying to escape shame and uh, the feeling and experience of shame. And I think this is the woman that we meet in this passage. It's a woman, we're going to get into it, but it's a woman who is has lived a long time in shame. And that's the way I want to do it tonight. I want to talk just two, two headings tonight. I want to talk first about the hardness of shame. And then the second thing I want to talk about is the healing of shame. The hardness of shame and the healing of shame. Let's start with the hardness of shame. Uh, here's what you need to know about the passage. Jesus is on his way to help Jairus, an important ruler, his little daughter who's very sick, about to die. She ends up dying, actually, because he's dealing, uh, healing this woman in her text. Uh, the crowds are on him. Jesus, the, the word is out about Jesus, that he's a healer. 
that he has great power. And you've got a mix in those crowds. You've got a mix of the curious. You've got a mix of the desperate. You've got a mix of the haters. Some love Jesus for what he can do for them. But some are starting to learn Jesus, starting to love him for his powerful mercy and love and enter this woman. And here's what Mark tells us about her. It's in the text, but she's had this awful bleeding condition. He doesn't elaborate for 12 years. Here's what we know. Horrible bleeding condition for 12 years, chronic pain. Uh, The doctors, many doctors, physicians that she's seen somehow have made it worse. No one's helping. No one knows what to do with what her condition is. She has spent all her money on trying to be healed. And you can imagine how truly desperate she feels. Just for a second, imagine, put yourself in the shoes of this woman. Can you imagine the pain? Can you imagine the frustration? Can you imagine the loneliness that she's feeling? And here's what Mark assumes his readers will understand that you and I living in the 21st century don't understand. And it's that this woman, because of her bleeding condition through Levitical law, would have been uh, considered seriously unclean. So the fact that she's out with the crowd is shameful. And the fact that she would have the audacity to touch or make her, to even touch the garment of a rabbi like Jesus was super, super shameful. To be unclean, to feel your uncleanness brings deep, deep shame and an experience of deep shame. And it's the voice of shame that if you know the voice, If you know the voice of shame, it says something like this. Anything in anyone I touch is going to be ruined. I am so worthless. I am so unclean. I am so bad. There is something deeply wrong with me that anything that I touch is going to be messed up. It's going to be ruined. Uh, listen, uh, here's a collection of people, how they say it. You ready? Ed Welch, a counselor, therapist, writer, says it like this. Shame is the deep sense that you are inherently flawed, unacceptable, and unworthy of love because of something you've done, something done to you, or something associated with you. The Abbott brothers say it like this. Shame, boatloads of shame, day after day, more of the same, blame, please lift it off. Please take it off. Please make it stop. The National, this is a new tattoo idea for myself. The National says it like this. When I walk into a room, I do not light it up. (laughs) Can confirm that feeling. Lana Del Rey says it like this. It's not fashionable to love me. Kurt Thompson, author of The Soul of Shame, a therapist and writer, says it like this. This is the one I want you to pay the most attention to. When we experience shame, we tend to turn away from others because the prospect of being seen or known by another carries the anticipation of shame being intensified or reactivated. However, the very act of turning away, while temporarily protecting and relieving us from our feeling and the gaze of the other, ironically simultaneously reinforces the very shame we are attempting to avoid. Notably, we do not necessarily realize this to be happening. We're just trying to survive the moment. But indeed, this dance between hiding and feeling shame itself becomes a tightening of the noose. We feel shame, and then shame for feeling shame, it begets itself. Let me be vulnerable for a second. Uh, Part of the story of my shame, 
was an experience in middle school of abuse. Um, the first time I spoke about said abuse was actually with my wife in a Wendy's drive through remember it vividly. There's a reason that a Wendy's spicy chicken number six combo just carries power. It's different. This is part of it. But it was the first time I had literally said out loud, keep tripping on this, that I had said out loud what had happened. It was kind of a two-part occurrence when I was 13, older neighborhood guy um, taking advantage of a vulnerable young man. And the shame of it from then until I think I was probably 22, the first time I ever shared it with another human being uh, who was now my wife, part of why she is my wife. But it was, uh, you can imagine trying to process uh, what had happened And the best thing that I can, the best way that I can say it is the voice of shame got real loud. And it said stuff like this. Uh, How could you let this happen? As if I were in control. What's wrong with you? No one can ever know that this happened because if they do, how could they love you? Your life will be ruined. You're unlovable. Everything and anyone you touch is going to be ruined now. And I I share that because I know I'm not alone. And I share that there are lots of different sources of shame. I promise you. It doesn't have to be that. That certainly can be one of them. But I share that to invite you into thinking for a second if you're willing to be vulnerable with me and with each other. And it's really a simple question. What has the voice of shame been screaming at you lately? What has the voice of shame been whispering to you lately? So the, the hardness of shame is what this woman is carrying. And then the second thing I want you to see is the healing of shame. Because then something remarkable happens through the weight of unbearable shame. She reaches out for Jesus, and she barely brushes the end of his sleeve. She's, I want you to see this woman clearly. She's hanging on by a thread to the belief that Jesus is the only one who can see her, who cares for her, who can love her, and who can make her well. And then the moment she does it, you see it in the text, two big things immediately happen. The first is she is healed. Her bleeding stops. And then the stranger detail is that Jesus, part of how he knows something has happened is he feels power leave his body. It's a strange, uh, it's a strange scene. And the way that we can literally say it is she touches just the, 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 the end of his sleeve, the, 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 the hem of his garment. He gets weaker, but she's made well. And then this beautiful thing happens. Her shame has been telling her, everything you touch will become unclean. You're unclean. Everything you touch will become unclean. And then she touches Jesus. Do you see it? And the moment she touches Jesus, the one who has come to take away our shame, the moment she touches Jesus, the one who is going to get weaker, As he dies on the cross, 
that we and that she might be made well. The moment she touches Jesus, her shame begins to fall away. And then this beautiful moment happens. Jesus says, who who touched me? And she comes and she falls down at his feet. And it's fair to assume, you can imagine, we can assume it, it's not in the text, but let's, I think it's fair to assume that Jesus, as he says this to her, gently touches her and he says to her, daughter. Do you hear that? He dignifies, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed. There's something important for us. This is one thing I want you to get. There's something important for us in understanding what faith is. Think with me for a second. Faith isn't improving yourself. Faith isn't feeling amazing all the time. Faith isn't never being afraid. Faith isn't never feeling tremendous amounts of guilt and shame. Faith isn't conquering your sin. Well, then what is faith? Faith is receiving and resting in the goodness of Jesus. Faith is collapsing at his feet. Faith isn't strength, but weakness reaching out. Faith is wanting, hear me, hear me if you feel like your faith is weak. Faith is wanting to want to believe that even touching the hem of Jesus's garment is better, somehow better than what you've been doing. I love the way that Sinclair Ferguson says it. He says it like this. True faith takes its character and quality from its object, not from itself. Faith gets a man or woman out of themselves and into Christ. Its strength, therefore, depends on the character of Christ. Even those of us who have weak faith, I love this line, even those of us who have weak faith have the same strong Christ as others. It's not the strength of her faith, but the object, Jesus. And she's freed of her shame, but here's what we know about Jesus. is Jesus, we're going to get here in Mark. She is free to her shame the moment she touches him. But Jesus, we know, is making his way to the symbol of great shame, the cross. And it's it's interesting, in Mark 15, these very garments that she touches, listen to the way we see them again in Mark 15. They show up again, and here's how the text goes. And they brought him, Jesus, to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. And divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Listen to me. The power of her healing wasn't in his clothes. The power of her healing wasn't even in her faith. The power is in the one who chose weakness, that we might be strong. Who chose death that we might live. The one who was so clean. We're going to get to a passage in Mark where they see the disciples. Some of them see Jesus in his glorified state. And then Mark's detail says his clothes were so white. It was as if that no one on earth could have bleached them that white. The, The pureness, the cleanness of Jesus, the one who was clean but chose uncleanness. Being crucified, Hebrews tells us, outside the camp where the unclean people were sent. That's where Jesus is crucified. Why? That the unclean, those who are messed up, 
tainted, flowing with sin, might be made clean. She brought her shame to Jesus, and he carried that shame to the cross, and he unshamed her. He met her deep shame with his great joy over sinners like her and you and me. Again, I love the way that Sinclair says it. In your shame, we might ask, in your shame, how could someone like you come to Jesus? Because he has come to your shame to bring you to his joy. He has come to your shame to bring you to his joy. You might feel like everything you touch is ruined, but not Jesus. He knows and he cares and he loves you. And he not only can handle your shame, but he can bring you into his joy. I promise. He promises. And the moment that you reach out for even the hem of his garment, it is the very moment you will feel wash over you the power of his love and the power of his grace. We'll close with this. Uh, one of the best episodes, you know, I'm a big movie TV guy if you've been here. One of the best episodes I've seen, gosh, I mean, it's been a minute, 10 years. Season two of The Bear, there's a one-two punch that's just beautiful. One is the Christmas Seven Fishes episode. And then the one that follows called Forks is just a, a wonder to behold. And all you need to know is uh, throughout the first season into the second season, as Carmi moves back from, if you're at Fall Conference, being a three Michelin star chef to take over his brother who's committed suicide, his uh, family Italian beef sandwich shop, there's this cousin Richie who just shows up and he's always around. Cousin Richie is just always in make fun of you mode. He's always just deeply, deeply sarcastic. You cannot get him to be serious. And he's always, even in the moments, you, you know his story's not going great. He's lost his best friend. He's not actually a cousin. He's just best friends with Carmi's older brother. He's lost him to suicide. Uh, he's going through a divorce. And he, you just, you can tell the whole time he, he doesn't feel like he really belongs. He's there. But you can tell just in his energy and his chaos and his sarcasm, he's not so sure he really has a place. He's not so sure that anyone really wants him. He's not so sure that anyone's ever going to take him seriously. He's not so sure that anyone's ever going to love him. And this beautiful thing happens in Forks where he's sent away. He doesn't know what's happening to him, but he's sent away to be trained at this high, high, high end restaurant. You're watching him just enter into it. He seems eager. The people seem to love him. He's been put to work. He's learning skills. But the whole time he thinks his, his, that Carmi is doing it to get rid of him. And there's this beautiful moment at the end where Carmi basically says, Brother, we were training you so that you can be at your best for what we're about to do in this new restaurant. And you can just see the love wash over him. And you get to watch in this episode, the way it ends is him driving away to Taylor's uh, love story. And it's a beautiful moment. <laughs> it's a beautiful moment. Because Carmi's love frees him of his shame. Love, joyful love, Jesus's love is the only hope for you and me in our shame. And the good news is that Jesus really does love you. And he really does love me. So let's come and be loved by Jesus. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you that, would you give us faith to even touch 
the hem of your garment. And to know, Lord, that you not only um, let us do that, you give us yourself. Lord, you give us your whole self in love. And in you, we have everything we've ever hoped for or dreamed. And in you, every single thing that we feel ashamed for has been made right and paid for by your death. Every single thing that we will feel shame for has been made right and paid for by your death. Lord, would you invite us out of our shame into your joy? We cannot do that by ourselves or for ourselves. We are looking to you. And Lord, would you give us even that weak faith um, to know that you really do love us. And that really is why you came for people like us. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. Please stand and sing our last song with us.